You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are finishing up the story of us, the series King David today. Now, I recall um, when I was a pastor out in California, one of my leaders in that church said his most, the most memorable sermon he ever heard was on King David, and it was called Dare to Be a David. And I thought, I'm not so sure. I want my kids to be like King David. Are there some reasons why we might not want our, anyone to be David? Can you name any? Uh, Bathsheba. It's called, you know, that was actually not simply adultery. That was also the position of power over a woman. Uh, do you understand what was all going on there? How could she say no? And then Uriah, the husband, murder. Those are just a couple, but then it's not just like, oh, then it's over. No, Amnon, Absalom, later on, even on his deathbed, there are some issues that you read his story and you go like, this guy is complex, and I dare you not to be like David in a number of ways as well. But this is the story, I think, that I'm glad it encapsulates and finishes the series, because I think we're going to learn a lot from David. <clears throat> and at the same time, realize that maybe some of our moralisms that you might have gotten in Sunday school, you know, just kind of highlighting the is a little off. Now, I understand why people have moralistically kind of elevated David to this role model. The problem with it, is, and, and it comes possibly from the, the Bible itself, uh, in the book of Chronicles. There's a repeated phrase. Now, Chronicles was written, we think, after the book of First and Second Kings and after Samuel, where our text is today. It was kind of written in retrospect to look back at all the kings. And a phrase comes up again and again throughout um, the book of Chronicles as it evaluates every other king after David by David. It's kind of like he's the standard. And you might have heard this phrase, a man after God's own heart. Have you heard that? And that's what made David so special. We're going to have to figure out what that word actually means because he was after something else when he was going after Bathsheba and not God's own heart. So what does that mean? We're going to figure that out today, I hope. Okay? I hope. So we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you can follow along. It's a rather lengthy text, but I think it all fits together as a story. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, 
Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as it, I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this text today, we're going to look at these three points. First of all, David's good, in, good intentions. Do you know what good intentions do, right? God's divine plan, and then what it means to be a human after God's own heart. Okay? That's what we're looking at today. So good intentions. We read right away, you know, David's now successful. He's finally gotten to the point. He's only moved six miles. I know that sounds weird, but Bethlehem is only six miles away from Jerusalem. It took 20 years. 20 years to the point where he moved from Hebron, where he was king for seven, to Jerusalem, where he's king for the next 33. But 20 years into his reign, he's finally at rest. He doesn't have to go out to war anymore himself. He can have others do that. He is at the point where he is now a house. He has a lifestyle he never expected. He has luxury and authority and peace from many of his enemies. And now he goes like, you know, I want to do something good for God. Okay? God's been dwelling in a tent It's time he has something like I have. So he proposes to Nathan the prophet. And and for a a prophet or for a pastor, when someone comes and says, hey, I want to, usually when you get someone coming to you and asking, it's usually for a need. Like, could you ask or could you pray for I need to talk or whatever. And have something like this where David, the king, comes to Nathan the prophet and says, I I don't want anything from God. I want to do something for God. Wow. Now, Eugene Peterson wrote a great book on the prophet or the King David called A Leap Over a Wall. And I'm going to quote him quite often. I mean, he's a great, uh, if you want to read any good books from a Christian pastoral perspective, et cetera, he's got a bunch of good ones. Now, like so many of the people I like uh, to read, He's dead. <laughs> I don't know why it is that dead. Well, it's not that I start liking you and you die, but uh, <laughs> he died a year or two ago. But this is a great book. And in it, he says this about, um, about this situation. Enthusiasm is immediate and uncritical. Nathan endorsed 
David's proposal wholeheartedly, unthinkingly. What was there to think about? What grounds were there for suspicion? A house for God, what could, could be better? Ooh, yeah. Um, over the course of history, we've got a lot of people who've thought of big ideas and favors they wanted to do for God. Have you ever noticed? We've got one in our midst called the Koreshans. Uh, yeah, Cyrus Teed thought he was the Messiah, doing great things for God, plan a community, etc. David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, are another example who basically stole a lot of the prophet prophetic material from Cyrus Teed, by the way. And there are things like, you can look throughout the history of the Oneida community, but beyond that, even within Christian ministry circles, we've had things like, oh, prayer towers built and mega complexes and um, amusement parks, all in God's name, doing God a big favor. Did God ask for any of those things? That's the question. It's a hard question to ask. Has God really done that? And what happens often is, as um, I, I said in my politics and religion class, you'll find out in the United States and elsewhere, different organizations, different small groups and large groups, nations even, somehow mistake themselves as the new Jerusalem, as God's ordained servant to the world, but not servant as much as Lord over the world. And they use that, quote, divine sanction to do all sorts of things, including atrocities like genocides. You know, it's pretty sad. Yeah. <clears throat> Is David going to be like the other kings around him? That's a big question, because by the way, most of the kings in the world at that time would do things like build a temple to a new god when they ascended the throne, raise up a temple, Egypt, Samaria, Babylon, and then have divine endorsement for their rule. I did this for God. I'm blessing God. He's going to bless me. David here is sincere with his desire and here's the thing I have to know. I can have sincere desires and be sincerely wrong. Ouch. Eugene Peterson writes, do you know what I think? I think that David is just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. Hetty with success is now going to be do God a favor. And so God responds to the prophet Nathan to this good intention by David and says, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, did, did I ask for this? Did I want this? Did I ever command this? No. This is a, what is amazing about the God of the Bible. We think God would want to take it easy on himself in a sense, you know, set up a place where everybody has to come to him rather than him dwelling with his people. But here's the truth of the scripture that David did not realize. Our intentions, our desires are not the same as God. God has chosen since the beginning, since the last time he was dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden. Once he banished Adam and Eve, east of Eden, ever since, God has also wandered with his people. He's also been in exile. He's always been on uh, 
the journey with us. And he will not settle down and take it easy until everything is settled in this world. There was a Sabbath rest in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We talk about that. And God rested on the seventh day. That is in one sense, and then every week he celebrates a rest with us, and yet he will not rest, and he will not take it easy until he draws all of God's people back to himself, and he settles all the issues that are breaking up and fracturing this world. We'll see that finally in the book of Revelation. God isn't looking for a bigger, better house. God doesn't call for that. He doesn't desire that. God is not going to settle down until everything's settled. But God, right now, with David, someone who wants to do God a favor, he's basically singing like our hymns today, our songs today, you know. You know, you deserve the greater glory. I'm amazed at that. To the king in need of nothing. Right? God doesn't need you to do anything for him. Shocking, isn't it? You need God to do something for you. Like I said, David's been treating God like almost all the other kings in the nations around him, that if that God wants to... To, to be in a posh place and have all these wonderful things happen to him. God shows his glory in this world by not being set apart, not necessarily lifted up, but dwelling with his people wherever they happen to be. And this is what God says to David. He says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. Who's the king? God is. You, David, are my prince. It's fascinating. In the book of Kings, you will find that often when the word prince is used, the Hebrew word for that, rather than the word king, there's a favorable impression made of whoever happens to be on the throne. But when the word king is used, often it's a negative connotation. Because God is the only king of his people, Israel. Eugene Peterson says this as well. I love this. He goes, he says, God says, I'm doing the building here, not you, David. I'm not going to let you confuse things by launching a building operation on your own. If I let you fill Jerusalem with the sights and sounds of your building project, carpenters, hammers, masons, chisels, teamsters, shouts, before long, everyone will be caught up in what you are doing and not attentive to what I am doing. This is a kingdom that we are dealing with, and I am the king. This is a really sobering um, scripture, by the way, because um, I've been a pastor quite a long time, longer than some of you have been alive. And um, I look back at all my big ideas. I've had big ideas here. And I wonder how much of it was what I wanted How much of it was what God wanted? It's always scary, isn't it? Because we've seen and we laud and magnify people who kind of do all sorts of big things that we think that are big. And God says, no, 
there's going to be a reevaluation of all values at the last day. And I think it's going to be evaluated in such a way that we will all be both astonished, shocked, but also thanking God for his bigger ideas and plans. David's ideas were puny compared to what God wanted to do. Now, if you say, well, you know, I know this seems like a non sequitur. I'm just kind of jumping over to this. But if you say, you know, I've heard it, and I kind of believe it, all religions are the same, I would agree with you as long as you realize Christianity is not one of them. It's not a religion. You see, what David was trying to do here is create the faith into a religion. I do this for God, and then God gives me favor. Religion is based on quid pro quo. Do you know that Latin phrase? This for that. I do this, then I get this. I follow these eight pa this eightfold path, and I get this in return. I follow these rules, and I get this in return. If I do this, then I get this. If I do God something, then God will bless me. We've got, even in Christianity today, a, uh, a weird, weird cultural strange thing going on in the United States called the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. It is a quid pro quo. Hey, it might be a great marketing tool. You might be able to build up a big kingdom. You might get all sorts of donations because you say you give us $10 and God will multiply it a hundredfold in your life. But I cannot do that because the scriptures don't set up. That's religion. Christianity is grace all the way through from beginning to end. And God says it in this text. So many times we can't even go through it. There are 23 verbs that were read in this passage where God is the one acting and doing something for David, and David did nothing. So what is God's divine plan? Our second point. God says, you want to build me a house? No. I don't need it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to build you into a house. I'm making you the house. I'm making you the dynasty. I'm going to dwell in you and with you and with your people forevermore. You know, he says, I took you, little, Nathan, uh, little David, the last of Jesse's sons, the runt of the litter, the little shepherd boy from Bethlehem. And I'm going to turn you into a dynasty that will last forever. I am going to promise to you something that is just astounding. And in fact, we will see in three different ways through this text, God does something. First of all, in verse 12, it says that death is not even going to stop God's promise on this. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So in other words, death ain't going to stop this promise. It's not just for you, David. It is forever. Secondly, um, human frailty and faults and sinfulness isn't going to stop this promise. This is what's astounding. God says, I will build him. I will be a father to him. He shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. In other words, in other words, Solomon, <laughs> if you know his story, who did build a temple, and all the other kings were 
frail, faulty, sinful, they fell away, and yet God would not stop his promise just because of that. No. And then finally, the last verse that we need to look at in this text where God says in 2 Samuel 7, 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Is God, uh, is this hyperbole? Is he overstating the case? Do you understand? Now, (laughs) if I talk to you there's a point where I might be trying to kind of butter you up, okay? Especially if you're somebody powerful, you know? If I would meet somebody, I'm kind of a, the employees do this to their employer. Come on, right? Right? Students do this to their professor. I know, right? And somebody like me will do this to all sorts, deans and, you know, you name it. God (laughs) is not in that position. God does not overstate. He means what he says and says what he means and sticks to it. And this passage is kind of the key to the whole thing. He says, it will last forever. How in the world, though, does this happen? This is a divine promise with no conditions. Time, death, even sinful humanity can't stop this promise from happening. And let me tell you, Israel was wondering about this because their kings do end. In Babylon, the last one is in prison, Jehoiachin, and then when they come back, there is no more king for hundreds of years. Until, who's called the son of David time and again in the Gospels? Jesus. Who's the one who establishes the the kingdom forever? Jesus. Who's the one who is able to do what's astounding and amazing and beyond all comprehension in how he established the kingdom, and that is Jesus. He is the one who gets to sit on the throne forever, and he does so by being placed on the throne of the cross. That's what's even more astounding is that God's son and God himself comes to the point of crucifixion for the sake of establishing his kingdom forever for you. And what God and Jesus are doing is not building a, a piece of real estate, a little geography, a building, an architect. No, what he is doing is he is building a community. And what God has intended from the beginning, from Adam and Eve on, has been to dwell among his people and within his people and as his people. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You're the temple. Did you know in the book of Revelation, at the end, when you see heaven and earth come together, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth, guess what's not there? A temple. Why? Because God's dwelling, it says, is with men. God is dwelling within us. That's God's intent. That was a bigger plan ever, that the whole earth is filled with his glory, that the whole world, all of God's people, gathered together in community, are his temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. 
much better than a building stuck on a piece on a rock somewhere. So what does it mean then that, what does it mean to be a human after God's own heart? We've kind of come back to that, our third point. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that David had a great idea. It doesn't mean that David did anything great for God. In fact, Eugene Peterson says it this way, what we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we, in fact, do. You know what David did? When Nathan told him, no, you're not going to build a house. God's going to build you into a house. The first thing that David does is sit there, nothing. It's after the text that we said, but David basically responds and sits down and says, wow. And what is really happening there is that David is basically letting God be God. And that his plans, his ideas, he doesn't need them. God doesn't need me. I'm astounded he's going to use me. He wants me. See, that's the thing, is God doesn't want a building. God doesn't want a little property. God doesn't want a monument. He wants you. And that's what David realized most of all. And that David's identity was not going to be about all the wars that he won or all the events that he could accomplish or all the things that he would do or all the psalms that he'd write. His identity was in the fact that he was chosen by God from that little shepherd boy to be the king, and it was all grace from beginning to end. It was God's grace. That's what God, what it means to be someone after God's own heart is to receive God's grace and who God is and what he's about. So Eugene Peterson says, if any one of us develop an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own action and performance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. You can be no good for God if you think you're so good for God. <clears throat> well, then, John, are you saying that Christianity is just about being sitting around, waiting, letting God do whatever? Passivity? No. You know, when J David sat, that was not a posture of inactivity, but a prayer. There's no danger. Peterson writes, no, there's no danger that as we sit before the Lord, our legs will atrophy and we'll never be able to get up again. But there is a great danger in getting so caught up in our own God plans that we forget all about God. I think that's important at this point in time and thrive in our community where we are, what God has, uh, is doing um, to make sure that, and we've been trying to do that over the years, and it's time and time again our plans have been stalled. Thank God they have. Our ideas have been put to the side. Thank God our ideas are put to the side. We need to sit Sometimes these watches. We need to sit. We need to let God be God and, and seek his will for this uh, church, for our community, and for this world. Human ambition and good intentions, we know what they can pave, as the saying has said. God's divine plans for us are so much better. If you don't get anything out of this message, then don't just do anything. Sit there. Maybe that's good enough. Okay, Because we're just too full of ourselves, and we need to be more filled with God and what his plans are. 
But I think we can also get, you know, our tagline from the beginning has been that where relationships are everything. And what that's really saying is what God's community has been always about, about the community that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are to be in fellowship with each other. And any facilities, any plans, any programming, any of that stuff needs to take a backseat to the relationships that God is developing among us and our relationship with God. And if any of that other stuff gets in the way of that, we've got to throw it out or repent or change or whatever, right? So maybe, you know, this is a good, uh, good, I think, cap to the series, The Story of Us, because we realize the story of us is not really about the story of us. It's the story of God with us, the story of God for us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for our time today, for this, uh, how David just responded by not doing anything, by not demanding, to, not trying to build the house, not trying to take over, but uh, was put, that you put him in his place. And he was thankful for that. You've put, uh, put, you need to put us in our place, Lord. You know how ambitious we can be and how that our ambition can blind us. And we're really about ourselves more, even though we use God talk about it, Lord. Forgive us for those things. You know, if we would say we have no sin, we are just deceiving ourselves. <laughs> no one else, not you. The truth would not be in us, but Lord, we confess our sins today, even our good intentions and how badly those things can be and how destructed they can be to others at times, Lord, how controlling we have been, how, um, how we want our will done, not yours, and forgive us for all of those things that we want to take your place, Lord. Just David, even in his good intentions, you stopped him from that. Stop us, Lord, and forgive us, and then renew us to serve as you would see fit, to serve and to have your will done among us and through us and in this community, Lord. There are so many wills being done in this world right now, Lord. Your will is not being done across the board in so many ways. It's a chaotic place where everybody's trying to play God, Lord, and we see the chaos around us. We ask no one else's will but yours be done, Lord, not ours and not anyone else. We want your will done and your kingdom to come among and through us. And your plans are much greater than ours, Lord. We thank you for that. We do lift up, Lord, this academic year. We thank you for the Lee County Schools and the teachers within them and administrators and, and bus drivers and custodians, everyone in the school system, Lord. We pray your blessing upon them as they care for our children and the future in many ways. Lord, be with them. We lift up to you, Lord God, um, the academic year at FGCU and our campus ministry, but it's not really about our, it's about your kingdom, Lord. We pray that your kingdom grows in and among both the students, faculty, and staff, and that this year you were glorified in ways that just will astound us all, Lord. That it's really about the relationships, the community that you give us. We lift up to you, Lord God, um, our church and our plans. You know what they are. We don't want them done if they're not what you want. We ask that you would guide and lead the leadership and all of us, Lord, to seek your will and seek your face constantly. Lord, uh, thank you for 
uh, this ministry and this time together. As we give of ourselves, Lord, with our tithes and offerings today, we actually want to give ourselves to you. Because that's what you want. You don't want stuff, you want us. Thank you, Lord. And as we give ourselves, use all our talents, all our abilities, all our treasures, everything that we have for your kingdom, Lord, that we would in, uh, in a kind of convoluted way or a backward way from what the world sees, a people who, who's, whose hearts are really after what you want, Lord that we are a people who are after your heart, Lord, in all matters in this world. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.